What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. The new report highlights the experience those sentenced to death by incarceration in Pennsylvania's women's prisons uh, has been released. Joining us to discuss her article about it, as well as the ways in which prisons use menstruation as a form of punishment, is Victoria Law, a freelance journalist and the author of Resistance Behind Bars, The Struggles of Incarcerated Women, 2012, and Prisons Make Us Safer and 20 Other Myths About Mass Incarceration, released in 2021. She also co-authored the book Prison by Any Other Name, The Harm consequences of popular reforms. Her latest articles are These Women Face Death by Incarceration But They're Organizing for Their Lives that was published in Truthout and Prisons Use Menstruation as a Form of Punishment which was published in Time. Good morning, Victoria. Thank you for coming back onto the show. Morning, Kat. Thanks for having me and covering these issues as you always do. (laughs) Same to you. Um, All right, let's start with the First article, these women face death by incarceration, but they're organizing for their lives. What is the From Victim to Victor report and who authored it? Sure. So uh, From Victim to Victor is a new report put out by the Abolitionist Law Center, a group called Let's Get Free, which is a Pennsylvania-based support campaign for women and trans people in Pennsylvania's women's prisons and the Human Rights Coalition. And it specifically looks at the experiences of women and trans people in women's prisons who have been sentenced to life without parole. Uh, Pennsylvania is one of a handful of states um, that has people, uh, that sentences people to life without parole for um, actions like what we call felony murder, what's called felony murder, in which somebody is not necessarily, you know, has not necessarily killed somebody, but was present during a criminal action in which somebody else was killed. Um, and Pennsylvania has the second highest uh, number of people serving life without parole in the country, trailing Florida, which has the first. And in the experiences and in the research and reporting on people serving life without parole, Oftentimes we look at the male experience because there are just so many men in the prison system. And this means that the gendered ways in which society funnels women into prison and into these lengthy and life sentences are often overlooked. And if they are not being examined and they are being dismissed, there aren't ways then to say, how do we stop this abuse to prison pipeline? How do we stop this gender violence to prison pipeline that society is pushing um, people towards? So uh, the study, the report looks at these experiences um, and looks at the pathways in which uh, women find themselves entangled in the legal system, looks at the ways in which the legal system discriminates, um, you know, based on race, based on sexual orientation, based on stereotypes of what a quote-unquote good woman um, should look like and how women who are in court don't meet those stereotypes, and then looks at these impacts of of these long sentences on specifically on women and people in women's prisons. 
All right, let's walk through some of the, mm -hmm. the threads in the report. Um, I want to start with the, the section that focuses on the impacts of patriarchal violence. Can you pull out some of those findings, including the fact that many of these women had never been arrested prior to the arrest that landed them in prison with lifetime sentences? Yes. So uh, the report found that over 60% of the people who uh, you know, whom they surveyed and interviewed had never been arrested before the arrest that led to their life without parole sentence. So that means that people had not, you know, contrary to what Republican lawmakers, like you talked about in the state terror roundup, are saying, it's not that people are repeat violent criminals that prey on society and, you know, need to be put away. These are people who, by and large, had been living their lives, but had also been victims themselves of patriarchal violence. 75% um, reported having been abused as children, um, most often at the hands of men that they knew, so their fathers, their mother's boyfriends, their uncles, their brothers, uh, male family friends. And violence often continued into adulthood. More than 80% said that they later became involved in romantic relationships that were abusive and violent. And what we see in this report, which mirrors reports that are being, uh, that have been conducted in women's prisons, is that the majority of people in women's prisons, if not all of them, have experienced male violence as children, as adults, or as both. And there's a trajectory in which this propels them into circumstances that pushes them further along this pathway to prison, that people who have not experienced uh, tremendous male violence, both as children or as adults, um, don't get pushed into that same pathway. And what we also found is that, you know, uh, many of the people who were convicted for the death of somebody else were convicted for the death of a romantic partner, um, which looks at the the ways in which patriarchal violence, again, leads to prison. If they were not, say, defending themselves or having to act in a moment, you know, to defend themselves, they might not have ended up in prison. Um, and in 85% of those cases, the people who, uh, you know, people reported that their partner had been abusive. And what we can extrapolate is that even though we are in 2023, people still minimize and deny abuse. So they might say, oh, it wasn't that bad because he didn't hit me that often. Or, oh, no, it wasn't that bad because I didn't have to go to the hospital. Or, oh, no, it wasn't that bad because X. Or they might simply not want to report this abuse to strangers, whether it is a an official with a clipboard at the prison or a survey from an organization that they don't necessarily know, um, knowing that their responses might be surveyed by uh, prison censors and prison mail authorities prison mail, M-I-L, authorities as well. So we can actually surmise that even though 85% said that the partner had been abusive, this number actually might be much higher. Right. We talk about that uh, a lot on the show and mm -hmm. inside of the context about why the state should not be the primary responder or even yes. necessarily interveners, right? And intimate partner violence. So many women um, either land in prison because the state intervenes and or never call for help because they're afraid of what the state will do. I want to highlight some of what you're talking about through a couple of the stories in the article. Let's start with Jamie Silvanek. 
Yes. Jamie Sovanek was 14 years old and had a 20-year-old boyfriend um, whom her mother disapproved of, and for good reason, because looking back, Jamie Sovanek uh, describes her boyfriend's actions as controlling and violent. Her mother opposed their relationship, and so her boyfriend killed her mother. Um, and even though Jamie was only 14 years old at the time and her boyfriend was legally an adult, um, she too, they were both charged with first-degree murder, um, And but Sylvanek was charged as an adult rather than as a juvenile whose brain was still developing and whose actions might be, you know, uh, not as well thought out as if she were 24, 34, 44. And Jamie was sentenced to 35 years to life. Because she was 14 years old, prison authorities put her in what they call the youthful offender unit, where children are held in isolation away from incarcerated adults. The fact that there is a youthful offender unit in which children are placed in adult prisons says volumes about the ways in which we treat certain children, um, particularly children who are marginalized or criminalized. And she spent four years in isolation and she was abused regularly by prison staff who would uh, verbally and emotionally abuse her. They would you know, talk about the fact that she was responsible for her mother's death. They would make her feel terrible when she tried to report this kind, these kinds of abuse, they retaliated by writing her misconduct tickets. So misconduct tickets are tickets for actions that are rule violations. They may not be, they need not be violent or life-threatening. It could be you have too many rolls of toilet paper in your cell. You have too many books. You didn't come out immediately when I told you to come out. Um, you know, you were supposed to be in your bed or out of your bed, but you were not doing that at the time that we saw you. So these are not tickets that say that she is violent, that she is dangerous, but just that she failed to obey rules in a timely fashion. And as anybody who has ever been 14 years old, you can imagine, you know, that it is very hard to obey seemingly arbitrary and capricious rules. And when she attempted to report their abuse, um, you know, like the tickets increased and it also increased her isolation and it kept her from being able to talk with her family who, despite her mother's death and her role in it and her boyfriend's or her now ex-boyfriend's role in it, still loved and supported her and wanted to stay in communication with her. And it also lessened the few opportunities the prison offered for her to interact with the other young people on that unit. So basically she ended up isolated even more on this unit uh, simply because she was 14 years old and because she had dared to file a complaint. So this is one of the ways in which, you know, we can see um, that the legal system not only failed her, but enacted even more violence upon her, you know, as a person, you know, caught in the criminal legal system. So the mission of this show is to expose, agitate, and build, and we could we could spend way more time doing agitation. There's some other pretty horrific stories in the article, mm -hmm. but I want to talk um, a little bit about the ways in which folks are trying to shift um, LWAP life without uh, parole. Um, so talk about currently the ways that a woman who's been sentenced to life can get out in Pennsylvania, and then I want to walk through the bills that are aiming to change that. Sure. So... 
if a woman were sentenced to life without parole in Pennsylvania um, and has and has exhausted all of her legal appeals, so she's gone to court and the courts have continually said no, 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 whether it's for, you know, a reason or because she was she failed to file in a timely fashion, there are strict time limits. Um, her only chance right now of getting out for anybody serving life without parole in Pennsylvania, not just women, is clemency or a sentence commutation by the state. And in Pennsylvania, unlike other states that allow governors the discretion to commute sentences like New York or like California, Pennsylvania has a more onerous process where your application goes before the Board of Pardons and Parole and all five members have to grant unanimous approval. And even if they do so, which oftentimes they do not, governors can still deny clemency. Between 1999 and 2022, only 57 people serving life without parole received commutation. 45 of those were granted by the most recent governor, Tom Wolf, between 2015 and 2022. And we look at that in contrast to the period between 1970 and 1995, when Pennsylvania governors commuted 285 life sentences. So in the period before we start seeing Biden build up on crime and all of the you know, mass panic around uh, people getting out, Pennsylvania governors were actually more willing to give people a second chance. So, um, but there are currently three bills that can provide other avenues for a second chance making their way through the state legislature in Pennsylvania. One of those is Senate Bill 135, which provides parole eligibility for anyone serving a sentence of life without parole, except for those who are convicted in the death of law enforcement. So that means that um, thousands of people would be eligible to appear before the parole board and argue their case that they deserve a second chance. Keep in mind that being parole eligible does not mean you get out. The parole board can say, no, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot. Um, until you die. Uh, the second bill, SB 136, is similar to California's elder parole bill in which people would be able to see the parole board once they turn 55 years old and have served 25 years of their sentence, which in California, it's if you turn 50 years old and have served 20 years of your sentence, um, you can see the parole board. And the Pennsylvania bill also includes people who have been diagnosed with a chronic terminal or debilitating illness. So if you are, um, if you have, say, uh, stage four cancer, you can apply even if you are not 55 or have served 25 years of their sentence. So it's the understanding that we should not be sending people to die in prison for acts, no matter how tragic and how egregious they were 20, 25, 30 years ago, we should not be letting people languish and die for something that they cannot change. Um, and the third one is can be seen specifically as for women in prison, but can also be applied to people of all genders, is an alternative sentences for domestic violence survivors, which would require that the court consider the person's history of partner abuse as a mitigating factor when they're sentencing. So say in the case of um, Shanae King, who I also talk about in my article and is mentioned in the report, she was told by an abusive partner that she had to go to somebody's house and kill her. And if she did not, the abusive partner threatened to kill not only her, but her children 
and her adult family members, and she was so scared of him that she did it, and she was sentenced to life without parole for that death. And there was no way in the early 1990s when she was sentenced for a court to say, or for a judge to say, even though you caused the tragic uh, and the tragic death of somebody else, uh, we understand that there was a role that abuse played and you don't need to be sentenced to life without parole. We can think of another sentence, a shorter sentence, uh, you know, I don't know if Pennsylvania would go as far as to do an alternative to incarceration, but something that means that eventually you will be able to go home and rejoin your family. Um, and that is the third bill in play. And there is a similar bill that became law here in New York City where I, or New York State where I am uh, in 2019, which uh, has allowed people who are sentenced because of crimes stemming from domestic violence or other types of abuse to reapply for to apply for resentencing. And so far, um, several hundred people have gotten out who were sentenced under draconian laws that did not take abuse into consideration. All right, Victoria, I am running out of time and I do not want to skip over the other article. It, it, it's mm -hmm. something that I talk a lot about women who are unhoused. Right, like the fact mm -hmm. that they two men straight, um, yes. and it's something that folks don't think about, and you, and something else folks don't think about is women that are incarcerated also menstruate. And your article talks about the ways in which prisons use menstruation as punishment. And if you could just pull on that thread, uh, we've got about three minutes yes. um, mm -hmm. about, about what's happening. Mm -hmm. Yes. So in all women's prisons and jails, people menstruate, and uh, prisons and jails are terrible at providing uh, adequate supplies, not because there's a shortage of supplies, but because it is another way to humiliate and punish people. So there, in many states and prisons, there are uh, limits to what you can and cannot get for free. So it might be you get 15 pads that are very thin, as if they are like maybe the cheapest ply toilet paper that you can get at the bodega or the drugstore. Um, there might you might be told no, you have to turn in uh, your used pads or tampons before we'll give you more. Um, I've talked to people who have said that guards have intentionally withheld or made very degrading the request for pads or tampons when people plead. Um, and in some states, they make people buy additional supplies which can cost as much as $15 per box for people who are making pennies, if anything at all, through their prison wages. And so um, this is another way in which prisons weaponize people's everyday experiences. And in the case of people in women's jails and prisons, people who menstruate um, to humiliate them, to punish them, you know, and to dehumanize them. Talk about the two federal laws that aimed at impacting this, but of course it only impacts women in federal prisons. So. Yes. So there is a bill called the Dignity for Incarcerated Women Act, which requires that federal prisons supply menstrual care products. Um, two weeks after Senators Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren introduced the bill, the federal prison system had a light bulb moment and announced that it would provide period products for free of charge. Um, and later this was codified as part of the First Step Act, which was signed into law. But the thing is, this doesn't mean that 
prison officials are necessarily, prison staff are necessarily carrying this out in the manner in which the act would require them. They can still make it very difficult for people to obtain um, sanitary products. They can um, they can still subject people to indignities. And um, they can just say, like, no, we're not going to give them to you. So this is uh, a piece of legislation that is aimed in the right direction, but the enforcement remains questionable given that prisons are places of total control. And the Dignity for Incarcerated Women Act on the federal level only affects people in federal jails and prisons who are less than 10% of the nation's 173,000 women behind bars. People in state prisons are dependent on the state laws to protect them. And many states currently do not have, over 35 states currently do not have any types of protections around menstrual care. Victoria Lobb, got to leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on the show and for your work. We appreciate you. All right. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox High. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.